welcome back to another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. season I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. So Professor Kingston Mills, Professor of Experimental Immunology and Director of the Trinity Biomedical Sciences Institute, Trinity College Dublin, is my guest on the podcast today. So Kingston's research area focuses on on understanding immune cells such as T-cells in infection and autoimmunity and has published over 300 peer-reviewed papers and book chapters. And in 2020, Kingston was awarded the prestigious SFI Researcher of the Year Award and was a recipient of the Provost Innovation Award at the Trinity Innovation Awards. So he's a member of a number of international scientific advisory panels and has been a prominent figure in this current fight against COVID-19. And so with that in mind, Kingston, I'm um, both honoured and quite grateful that you have taken the time to chat to me today. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Delighted to talk to you, Megan. So um, as people, if, if people have been following the podcast, which I hope I have some loyal followers out there, they'll know that I have interviewed um, your very successful daughter, Ivana Mills, in season one. I've interviewed your equally successful wife, Professor um, Marina Lynch, in season two. So I'm, I'm kind of completing the family now. Is there anyone else I can get on for season four? Well, I have a, I have a son, uh, Tim, but he's a... Um engineer um, and now he's back in college doing architecture so not quite in the same family tradition of, of pure biological sciences but uh, yeah no I'm very proud of my daughter but uh, she's achieved in a short career to date and obviously Marina has been a big part of everything I have done in terms of supporting me and helping me she's been fantastic and it's been great to come home in the evenings and speak to someone about science that understands it so it's it's actually we've been a partners for over 40 years and um, met while doing our PhDs together in Trinity um, and have been together since then. Yeah, I know, because when I was talking to Ivana, you know, she was talking about having the, the scientific chats over the dinner table when, when her and her brother were younger. And but obviously rubbed she, off on her. She was indoctrinated from a very early age. And uh, I remember her writing a um, personal statement for an IRC grant Irish Research Council um, studentship and it, the, the personal statement said something, I don't remember what age she was, but I was very young when I first heard the one, the word interleukin-1. And interleukin-1, of those who don't know, is a key cytokine in, in inflammation and indeed in, in COVID-19 as well. So she was listening to that at a very early age and it obviously did rub off on her and then she decided to pursue, do a degree in immunology and undergraduate and then a PhD with Luke O'Neill before um, you know going off to Harvard where she is now. Yeah no I mean I, I the, the both episodes with the two of them I got such great feedback and I'm, I'm really excited to kind of delve into you know your academic journey and um, I suppose the research that you're doing but Firstly, you know, we were chatting before we came on. So we're both from Westmead. We both grew up on farms um, and have both somehow ended up in immunology and Trinity. So talk to me about growing up, um, I suppose, in, in Westmead outside Mullingar and then, you know, how it led to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, actually, I was passionate about sport. And really, my ambition was that my father had been an Irish international athlete. And I was, my biggest ambition as a youngster was to be a successful runner, not to be a scientist. And, um, but, uh, you know, as I went through second level in um, this school in County Westmead called Wilson's Hospital, I sort of got very interested in science, very much inspired by a, a teacher in the school, a guy called Tommy Johnson, who, you know, really did make biology very exciting. And it sort of got me hooked on science and biology in particular. And then when it came to leaving CERT and the choice afterwards, um, we didn't have CEOs in those days. You applied to every university you wanted to go to. And I applied to Limerick to do physical education. That was sort of following my sporting passion. And I also applied to Trinity to do science. And I got got accepted for both of them. Then I had to make a decision. 
and I made the decision on science really because I was sort of looking forward to the future and thinking, you know, when I'm 40, maybe I'm going to be injured, not really interested in sport anymore, and science might be, you know, a better bet. And I, I, I went down the science route and never regretted it, really. I still managed to do the, the sport on the side. Uh, I was an international runner, but... Um, you know, science has given me a fantastic career and I, I never regret it going into it. Yeah, because you, you were quite successful in, in athletics. You know, am I right in saying you, you just made, missed out in the Olympics or, you know, there was world championships and stuff in there as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I had the qualifying time for the marathon in the Los Angeles Olympics in the 1980s. And I would have been selected had... Um, John Tracy decided not to run the marathon. He had never run a marathon before, but decided to run it in the Olympics. Of course, he got the silver medal, which was fantastic for him and for Ireland. Um, but it meant that I did miss out on it. Now, as it happens, I ran three world championships, um, two in cross country and one in, in the marathon and tra- track and field championships in Rome, again in the 80s. So I had a reasonably successful career. I was balancing being a postdoc. It was mostly during the, my time in London as a postdoc, primarily in Mill Hill, the National Institute of Medical Research, which is now the Crick Institute, where I was for five years. I was at my sort of peak of running at the time and I would I would do experiments where I would have an hour incubation period for cells and I would go out and run 10 miles <laughs> in that period. Anyway, so, you know, running was a big part of my you know, career as um, when I was balancing being a, um, a trained scientist and, and training as a scientist. And But, you know, when that finished the running, I, I, I suppose I dedicated my time more to science, but managed to keep both going for about 10 years. And I suppose just going, you know, going back before we go forward, um, you know, growing up, were you ever tempted to, you know, stay on the farm and I suppose follow in, in your father's footsteps? Um, I know my dad has absolutely no hopes that I would do that, but I'm just wondering, was was that a, um, yes. a conversation that was had? Well, I had an older brother and he um, ended up going home to the farm. So, you know, I did uh, at one stage think about farming. And once he had decided that he was going to be the farmer, that was it. I wasn't going to um, splitting farms in two is, is never really a sensible option. It's hard enough to make a living in farming, as we know, as you probably know from your family, without you know having the size of it. So it, it was. It, it, and to be honest, I wasn't in the later years in secondary school. I'd really got into the idea of doing something different, like science. And so going back to the farm had gone out the window at that stage for me. So, you know, talk to me about starting off as an undergrad in, in Trinity, you know, with, with science and how that experience was and why then you decided, I suppose, to pursue a, a PhD or an academic career in science. Yeah, I mean, going to Trinity was a fantastic experience for me because I'd gone up, you know, growing up in the countryside, the nearest house was sort of a quarter of a mile away, the nearest town was six miles away. So I had very little interaction with other people to be honest in school obviously we had and in school you know the school I went to wasn't the most academic in in that not many people went to university there were three kids from my year that went to university and that was unusually high mm. so and, and I was the first person to school ever to do honours maths in the leaving cert Gosh. and I did honours maths in the leaving cert without any tuition from a teacher because there was no teacher that could teach honours maths so my mother was astute enough to realize I needed help. So during the summer of my fifth year, going into the final year, I got some grinds from the local, um, one of the teachers in the local convent school in Mullingar. And that sort of put me on the road. And then I figured it out myself and got the honor in maths as a result. So, you know, it, it was it was tricky enough um, being in a school, apart from the, the science teacher who was absolutely fantastic. We had one or two other good teachers. It, you know, they wouldn't have had a tradition of students going to university from that school. Now, of course, you know, I suppose most of them go to third level. So talk to me then about, you know, moving over to London then post PhD and what, what that was like. Yeah, I mean, so when I finished my PhD, there was absolutely not, um, nothing in Ireland in terms of jobs. This was 1981. And um, I'd met Marina, my wife, now uh, around you know, a couple of years before that, and she just finished her PhD as well. And we just both packed everything we owned into one car and drove to London. <laughs> and, uh, got, you know, we had two jobs in advance and um, didn't think too much about, you know, what was the best place to work, just applied for jobs, both got jobs and went there. When we went to London, we ended up, Marina was in King's College, which was a much, you know, it was a very good job she was in and she was with a very good, a good PI. I was with a clinical 
PI in University College Hospital, part of UCL. And I got lots of papers during my postdoc, um, but they were low-key papers, but they were papers nevertheless. And it, it, it put me on the road to a, a publishing career. And I know I had quite a few papers on my CV at the end of that postdoc. And then I was able to get a job in Mill Hill, which the National Institute of Medical Research, now the Crick Institute. And that was sort of the really important job for me because I learned so much there. It was a fantastic place to work. It's, it, you know, there was so many good researchers and so many good people coming through all the time. So this had, this really molded my career, the five years in, in Mill Hill. I went from there to, to the National Institute of Biological Standards and Control, which is part of the regulatory agency, but they have a lab. And I had my own lab there with my first independent lab and then, and then came back to Ireland. And was there ever a point where you thought you would stay in London? Yeah, I mean, it was on the cars that we might stay. And really, we'd had a, we'd have children, um, well, we were both postdocs, so we would uh, be, be juggling both. Marina was still working, um, and, and she worked uh, all the time during during the two, the two pregnancies and right up when we're bringing up the kids. So, you know, she uh, and I balanced being postdocs. We're both postdocs when we, we had the young kids. So one of the reasons for coming back to Ireland was aging family and um, education of our children. You know, education is better in Ireland, in our view, and it is tricky in London to get your kids into, especially second-level schools. If, and it's very much and depends on where you live, and people move houses specifically to, to get their kids into better schools. So that was one of the motivations. We weren't pining to be back in Ireland, to be honest, because the facilities and the money available for research in, in Britain were far, far better. My first grant when I came back to Ireland, in, to, to Maynooth, was 5,000 euro for, um, well, 5,000 pounds it was, in fact, mm-hmm. from the HRB for um, a, a PhD student and, and the stipend, which I think was similar. So it was maybe 10,000 a year for, for three years. And, and that, that was my starting grant. And then I got Welcome Trust funny, money, which was much, much bigger. And that sort of put me on the road to, to an independent career in Ireland. So, you know, you, you came back to Maynooth and, and how long were you there before you made the move to Trinity then? I was eight years in Maynooth and I built up quite a big research group. I had maybe 15 or so people, six or seven PhD students and seven, eight postdocs and a lab manager in my lab in Maynooth. And I got money from various sources. Every conceivable grant awarding authority that we were able to apply to, I applied to. About, I would say I spent 30% of my time fundraising and um, then writing papers um, and, and, and doing you know, the, 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 the teaching. I wasn't doing a huge amount of teaching, but I was the dean of the science faculty for three years there. So I did a lot of administrative work as well and worked my way up to being an associate professor. And But I always wanted to be in Trinity, quite frankly. And I bid my time and, and a job came up and I applied for it. Um, but the job was for a lecture and I said, I will come, but I'm only going to come if you give me a chair. And fair enough, they did. They gave me a chair in the end. And, you know, Tom Mitchell was the provost of Trinity at the time, and John Hegarty was the Dean of Research, and people like Luke O'Neill and, and Clive Williams, um, head of, Clive was the head of our school, they all facilitated it, and I don't think they'd regret it, because just as I arrived in Trinity, I got my first SFI grant, which was a grant for €5 million, Euro just for one investigator, wow. and, and, and that was sort of really put me on the road to a successful lab when I, when I moved to Trinity. I suppose just on that point, like, you know, it, do you find it hard to be constantly trying to raise money to keep, I suppose, your research going, but also keep people in jobs? Yeah, I mean, when I was in Maynooth early on, it was very, very, very difficult because the money was so tight and there were so, the grants were so small, some of them. But I think two, two things that changed. One, getting Welcome Trust money really helped me because they were more substantial grants and they were very prestigious. And then when SFI came along, getting the large SFI grant, I mean, it, it meant once I got that 5 million euro grant when I moved to Trinity, I didn't have to apply for another grant for three years, mm. which was fantastic. It meant I could concentrate fully on research and the level of teaching what I was doing, which wasn't a huge amount because my salary was also being paid by SFI. I was exempt from teaching, although I did do some teaching. So it was an unbelievable time. During that five years, you know, we published about 50 papers and filed about eight patents, set up a startup company. And that was the sort of payback to SFI for their investment in me. So I think it was, it was money well spent. 
Yeah. And I suppose, you know, before we get into, because I, I do want to talk to you about, you know, startups and patents and stuff, but this is probably a good point to bring in your research. So talk to me, I suppose, about the overarching aims of your research career to date, which might be difficult considering you have, you know, there's so much there to unpack. But yeah, if you could give me a little flavor as to what you focus on. So very from the very beginning um, during my PhD, my PhD was on bone marrow transplantation and the role of T cells, these immune cells that, that help fight infection. Uh, what, what was their role in, in, graft, in graftment of bone marrow and in a, a, a syndrome called graft-versus-host disease? And it turns out that T cells have a major role in graft-versus-host disease. That's where the graft responds against the host that it's transferred into if the host is incompatible with the graft. And that was my PhD. So it got me interested in T cells. And I, 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 right since that, that PhD, right until today, my focus has been on T cells my, primarily. I have worked on other cell types, but this, the, the major focus throughout my entire career on, has been on one population, these CD4 T cells, so-called helper T cells. So it started in, in transplantation. And then when I went to um, London, I worked in T cells, in T cell leukemias and lymphomas. And that was a short period into, into cancer. And then when I went to Mill Hill, I started working on T-cells in infection, in particular influenza. When I went to NIPSC in Potter's Bar, I shifted into other infectious diseases. I was working on HIV, SIV, poliovirus. I started to get interested in, in, in Bordetella pertussis, the bacteria that causes whooping cough. Yes, again, keeping the theme, what's the role of the T-cell in protecting against these diseases? And that got me into the vaccine field because T-cells, as well as antibodies, are crucial to protective immunity pathogens. So I was applying the basic knowledge on T-cells to help make better vaccines. Then when I came back to Ireland and to Maynooth, I continued to work on, I didn't work on HIV anymore because it was too difficult in Ireland because we didn't have all the facilities and containment, et cetera. So I focused more on the pertussis work. And I started then getting interested in autoimmune diseases because T cells are a big component in autoimmunity. And I started, I had two sort of parallel and still have two parallel themes in my lab, one on autoimmunity and one on infection. Um, but there's sort of very good crossover between the two because in one sense, the T cell is protecting against infection and exactly the same class of T cell, if dysregulated, can cause autoimmune diseases. So that gives me insight from two different angles. So how does the immune system control infection on the one hand using a, a T cell called a TH1 or a TH17 cell? And how, on the other hand, can you stop those T cells getting out of control and causing autoimmunity? So those have been the questions I've been asking for the last sort of 10 or 15 years um, in, in my current lab. And still, we haven't all the answers. And I think, you know, we've you know we've published a few decent papers on it but there's a lot more that we can still still discover you know hopefully and, and there's still more grant applications you know in my head on what we can discover in the future yeah i think it's interesting the point there that you know you're focusing on both autoimmunity and infection and they're kind of like two sides of the same coin essentially and it's all about balance um yeah. i suppose with with immunology one kind of area which i think is so interesting is you work on the helminth parasite and i'm i i just find it fascinating that that could potentially confer protection against diseases such as ms so maybe talk to me about that um research area Okay, so actually, we just had a paper accepted yesterday in the Journal of Immunology, PhD student, Carl Cunningham. And it's a, it's a really elegant bit of work, if I may so, so myself. And to be, give, give fair credit to Kyle, he came up with an awful lot of the ideas for this project himself. So what it shows is that if you treat a, an animal with um, a mouse with helminth products and leave them for many, many, many months, up to eight months, and you take out their bone marrow, those bone marrow cells are epigenetically modified, the stem cells. And if you transfer those bone marrow, I was going back to my PhD days at this stage because I'd worked on transplantation into a, another mouse that you've irradiated, so you've knocked out its immune system, you transfer in these bone marrow. Those recipient mice have trained innate cells that they, they generate. So those cells are modified as well to respond in a more anti-inflammatory fashion. So what the helminth does, it's trying to turn off immunity because it's a, it's a survival strategy to stop the host from rejecting it. So it has anti-inflammatory function. But that seems to be mediated at the level of the stem cell. 
And we were able to show that the stem cells from those treated animals are modified. And then when you transfer them to another animal, you've transferred that modification. So it's quite a nice evidence that of what we call the hygiene hypothesis, which was that people who are exposed to helminth parasites have less allergy, but also have less autoimmune diseases because their helminths, the helminths are shutting off those pathogenic immune responses that cause those immune-mediated diseases. And there's potential to use helminth products now to treat diseases like MS. And there are trials ongoing with either live helminths, um, and just to explain what helminths are, helminths are, are, are flukes and, and worms. These are things like the, the, the one we work with is fasciola hepatica, common liver fluke. But obviously the human studies are being done with certain flukes that are not pathogenic in humans. These are, would be things like swine nematodes, which are, are, are uh, sorry, helminths, which are, which are not pathogenic in humans. And there have been trials now in patients with MS and in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. They haven't been that successful to date, but I think the way forward is to identify the molecules mm. that cause the military activity rather than giving the, the live helminths, which are too difficult to control the dose, et cetera. So there's a long way to go on this before it's a treatment. So I suppose you could kind of, you know, if you could see what these helminths are triggering in the immune system and I suppose harness that. Yeah. And how to trigger it as well. So first of all, how, how, how you use a pure molecule rather than the whole life organism mm -hmm. to trigger it and what the target is. And if you know what the target is, you can use artificial ways of triggering that. And that's been the aim of the, the most recent research that we've been doing in that particular arm of my research lab. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I suppose the whole um, idea there would be to use the person's own immune system to, to dampen autoimmunity or to fight infection. And then on the other side of it, you work a lot on tumor biology as well and to use to harness the patient's own immune system to combat tumor cells. Yeah, I mean, uh, that has been my strategy in terms of trying to inform the design. We're not going to design necessarily new drugs, although I will come to something that we are doing a little later and perhaps when it comes to talking about patents and startups. But our strategy has been to try and understand uh, how um, we can get the immune system to control its own responses. So in the case of autoimmune diseases, we know there's uncontrolled responses. And um, these are, you know, in particular, these Th17 cells, these T cells that produce IL-17, they've been strongly implicated in psoriasis, multiple cirrhosis, but also other autoimmune diseases like ankylosing spondylitis. And the, the, even now there's some evidence in, in autism, in Alzheimer's disease, that these <coughs> cells can be pathogenic. So but blocking them, um, you know, is potentially a target in, in, in many, many diseases. In cancer, it's the opposite. You know, what you want to do in cancer infection, you want to turn on responses that are, that are over-regulated. And in cancer in particular, the tumors produce, you know, immunoregulatory responses in the same way as helminths do, in fact to turn off responses to make the tumour grow better. And what the, the current checkpoint immunotherapies are doing is they're reversing that regulation and allowing the natural immune response to develop to control the tumour. And I don't know whether you'll find this a difficult question or whether it's something that comes straight away, but you know, in your entire career, what do you think has been the most exciting piece of research that you, know, you have conducted? Yeah, I mean, we published a paper um, last year um, in the Journal of Experimental Medicine, which has been the most difficult paper I've ever had to publish, but the most rewarding study that we've done. And it's, about, and it's, it's also one of the, the reason it's so difficult to publish because it's extremely controversial. Okay. So we, we found a new population of cells, which is pretty, you know, it's pretty strange. I mean, Marina, my wife, sometimes laughs at me. She says, we're always... Um, if we can't understand something, we just we, we just dream up a new population of cells. And maybe not that she has lots of population of cells, but this is another new one. So what it is, is that T cells, the most of our T cells have a receptor, all of our T cells have T cell receptors. And most of them have receptors that are alpha, beta. And then a small number have receptors that are called gamma deltas. And these are found mainly in mucosal surfaces and they fight an early response to infection. They're also implicated in autoimmune diseases, so dysregulated, for example, in multiple cirrhosis. And what we found was a cell type that expressed both receptors, the alpha, beta, and the gamma, delta. And this is, goes against all the dogma of T-cell development, because T-cell development, the textbook says, you get a divergence of alpha, beta, and gamma, delta T-cells leaving the thymus, and you don't ever, you know, you shouldn't see a cell that has both. 
but mm. we found them in, in small numbers. We're talking about 0.1% of the total T-cell population, but we were able to purify those, show their function. We did single-cell RNA sequencing of this, the, the T-cell receptors in individual cells to show that had all four chains of the T-cell receptors. We did multiple functional studies and we had, uh, there was about, there were 34 authors on the papers God. and six institutions that had helped wow. us, three in the States, three in Britain, one in Portugal. And, you know, this was where I really had to pull out the stops because we didn't have the molecular techniques in my lab to complete the story. We were more cellular immunologists. So it has been a very satisfying, we, we, put, we, we submitted the papers to many journals, including Nature. It was reviewed twice in Nature. And um, it was rejected on both occasions because simply because people didn't believe it. And um, um, it went to Nature Immunology. It was reviewed in Nature Immunology, again, rejected because like, for the same reason. It went to Science Immunology, they didn't review it. And then we decided we would send it to JXMed. JXMed, as you know, is a, is, a, is a good class immunology, even though it's got a strange name, Journal of Experimental Medicine, it is really an immunology journal, um, mm. or most of the papers in their immunology. And, you know, it's not it's not nature, but it's a good quality journal. So in the end, we were delighted to get it accepted there, even though at the same, you know, within a month, we had a paper in immunity, which is a much higher impact paper, which was also on, on T-cells and autoimmunity. But this JX Med paper is the most pleasing paper and the most pleasing bit of work that I've ever done because it has knocked dogma and because it was so difficult to get it published because it was so controversial. And have you seen other groups around the world replicating this? Um, or Not yes, but yeah. Um, yeah, a couple of journals did write news and views or articles on it, profiling the paper, which means that they picked up on it. Mm. And, um, you know, it's been a re- it was a very bad time to publish. It was March 2020, just when the, the COVID-19 mm. is. And, you know, so almost everything in science, not stopped, but some like invitations to meetings, you know, they dried up completely in, in, in March. To, to tell, I mean, I would normally speak at maybe a dozen meetings a year, in, mm-hmm. you know, and when I fly off to, to, you know, great locations. Last year, I spoke at one meeting outside of Ireland just before the pandemic hit, and I had four virtual meetings that I participated in. But, um, and that was, that's been a, a huge negative consequence of COVID-19 for science, not being able to meet colleagues and talk to them. I know, definitely. And even, you know, apart from the fact of presenting your research, which is a huge part of it, but it's networking and, and you know, yeah. conversations that you wouldn't have over Zoom, I suppose. Exactly. So when I go to a meeting, a lot of the real benefits are not get, getting up there and talking. People usually have read your papers if you've published already or will read it when you're going to publish it. It's been able to talk to people in the pub in the evening. Are those chance bumps, some of you spark somebody's interest in something you've said. They've come up to you afterwards and said, have you tried this? Would you like to collaborate on that? And that's how all the good interactions occur. So going to meetings is a vital part of what we do as scientists. And I would always encourage my young, I mean, I one of the, the, the sort of mantras I have for people in my lab Put in a put in an abstract to the meeting and go go to two or three meetings a year, one local, one in the UK, and one international. And that you know has something I promoted. And we always build in a travel fund into my grants so that people can get. They, they, I encourage them to get some of their own money to go, but we we, we supplement it with money for my my research grants. So travel to meetings is a hugely vital part of the learning process. And you never you're never too late, as I can say, of of, of being able to learn things. And, um, you know, you can learn so much by going to meetings rather than reading papers. You can learn so much from reading papers as well, but you learn far more from going to a meeting. Yeah. And, and sometimes you can read a paper, but once you, when you see the actual first author, last author present it and the story kind of come together, I, I suppose in a way it's more exciting because you can, you can hear the enthusiasm from them as well, rather than just seeing it on a, on a piece of paper. Absolutely. And the other thing is it makes you sit down and listen to it. When I'm reading a paper, I get distracted and, and um, you know, I never... Well, I do, I suppose, read it from cover to cover, but you wouldn't look at every nuance of every figure. Whereas when you're sitting down in a lecture theatre and someone is giving the lecture, you know, you're there and you're going to listen to it. And it does force you to think about it as well. I, I, I you know, do a lot of thinking when I'm watching people giving presentations. I think it's a great mode to keep your brain active in terms of what's going on in the world and, and helping your own research to further it. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I suppose... 
talk to me then about commercialization of research and you know your group has filed a number of patents you've been involved in a number of startups and how has that experience been like do, do you find it rewarding stressful pressurized I don't know give me your thoughts <laughs> all of the above <laughs> um so it started really with SFI funding in uh, you know when I got my first SFI grant the part of their rules were you've got to protect your intellectual property I was reasonably aware of intellectual property from an early stage, but not as aware as I was after I got SFI funding because they really made it. I mean, it was, it was government payback for, for investment. I'm absolutely right. So we start to file patents. And I said in the first grant that I got from SFI, we filed, I think, six to eight patents. And one of those was licensed to a, a startup company, Upsona, which I co-founded with Luke O'Neill and Mark Heffern and Dermot Kelleher. That company went on to raise a total 65 million euro in funding. And at the peak, it had 23 workers. So it mm-hmm. employed 23 people, mostly scientists. We had a co-development deal with a company called Wyatt, which is now Pfizer. And that was the significant element of the, uh, and it brought in additional revenue from the venture capital money. Mm. But it is, it's not for the faint-hearted setting up startup companies. I mean, you have to be extraordinarily persistent. I'm currently on the third. Um, my my sec- The second one that I co-founded, Trimod, uh, with Jeremy Skillington, we raised seed money, but it was right in the middle of the recession and it was on cancer immunotherapeutics. The first one was on anti-inflammatories. Opsona. And I'm in the process now of trying to finalize deals on, on a third company. Um, I, I'll be able to talk about that properly, in, hopefully in, in a few weeks or months time. But, you know, it's been my ambition to get something from my lab into patients. Mm. That was That's the motivation rather than making money. If I make money and it's so be it. But to be honest, it's difficult enough. You hear some stories about the great successes such as Infrasome and, um, and, other, and others. But by and large, you know, nine out of 10 startup companies will end with, with the founders getting nothing from them. Um, so it's, if you want to make money, it's, it's, it's not really likely to be a success in, in a lot of cases. So it's driven really from me for getting some of my discoveries in the lab into people. Now, the Opsona, the company that I, I co-founded with Luke and, and, and Dermot, we did take my molecule was the one that was the, the, the first molecule to, um, to go into development. We made GMP production of the molecule. It was a, a pathogen derived molecule that had had anti-inflammatory activity, but it turned out to be far too difficult to synthesize on a, on a, on a scalable amount. We were able mm-hmm. to do it in the lab okay. in small amounts, but when we, when we scaled it in a production system that was required for GMP, you know, that's required to go into the clinic, it just didn't work, and we we scrapped it. The, the company decided to sort of had spent maybe a million on it and uh, decided that, you know, we're going to move to something else. And then we actually licensed in an antibody from another university. And that was what the basis of when we went into phase one and phase two trials. But those trials failed because the indication was kidney transplantation. And it turned out the kidney transplantation, what happens during kidney transplants, you get graft rejection because the graft is not as in, in good condition. And you get what's called reperfusion injury when they reconnect the graft, the kidney. And the a, a TLR2 was implicated in this, and we had a TLR2 antibody. But by the time we got to do the trial, the, the surgery had improved, and the whole process had improved so much, there were very few people that had rejection. So we, we actually didn't have a market for our drug, um, and, and the company you know ended up um, folding because the, the trial effectively failed because they couldn't show a benefit of the drug. In that trial, and, and the, the the model for most startups is one is one drug, so you don't have backups. If, if, okay. the, if your lead drug fails, now we did have it. This was our second drug, but we had got so little way, so we'd spent so little money on the first drug, we were able to start the second. But if you spend sixty five million on one drug and it fails, you're not going to get a second chance. So that's just the way that the venture capital community uh, work in that they will fund a company, but they mostly, you know, will insist that company has one drug and sticks to it and hopes that it works. I suppose it makes sense, but it's also quite scary because you have to pick one and you're putting all, placing all your, hedging all your bets on one. Yeah, you are. And and that's, you know, you have to really believe in what you're doing and you, there's no, there's no, there's, there's no second chance. Now, some of the smaller startups would have a pipeline, and I think it is a good idea to have a pipeline where you have 
Um, but that comes a little later than, than the first money you raise. The first money you raise will usually be on the back of a single molecule or, or drug or idea. And then if that gets traction and you get into, you know, true phase one tr clinical trials, then you can have a backup that, that you know, you're, you're trying to build a portfolio of products. But that comes a little later usually. Um, and it is unusual in the case of Infosome, it was sold with, with, with one drug, but it had multiple indications. You know, that, that's quite unusual, um, but it was great for them to, to, to have that success. And, you know, just thinking about that, the fact that Infosome, I suppose, had a number of, of indications. I think that's perhaps the beauty of studying immunology in that you can cross over so many different disorders and diseases and you know if you if you think about what we spoke about today you know there's been a tumor there's been infection there's been autoimmunity i know you also work a lot on and your inflammation so there's so many different i suppose diseases that immunology affects if it's dysregulated um exactly and you know some a lot of the parallels in terms of i mean i work on vaccines for example as well uh, against infectious disease, but I did do some work on vaccines against cancer. And the same principles apply to, to both of them. You're, you're, in both diseases, you're trying to stimulate a T-cell response against an antigen, whether it be a tumor antigen or a foreign antigen. And in the case of the autoimmune diseases, there are multiple autoimmune diseases where the cytokine IL-17, for example, or IL-1, has a major pathogenic role. So if you could come up with a a blocker of either of those two cytokines, potentially you have not just an autoimmune disease, but IL-1, for example, is now involved in, known to be involved in lung cancer. So, so the, the, the antibody canyukenumab, which was trialed in rheumatoid arthritis and didn't work all that well, it turned out that some of the patients in the trials were less cancers, less lung cancers in the patients that got the canyukenumab compared with the control. And then the company in Avartis who are doing the trial, figure this out and start doing trials with lung cancer. So this was one of the serendipitous discoveries. Mm. But you're absolutely right. Because immunology is so broad reaching, it's not just treating, you know, one disease like arthritis or multiple cirrhosis. It's potentially treating a whole plethora of diseases where there's a common molecule that's uh, damaging or protective in many of them. So that's one of the wonderful things about immunology. I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm sort of biased but I really do think immunology is the sort of future of medical treatments for so many diseases because it reaches into so many areas, Alzheimer's disease, obesity-related disorders, all the autoimmune diseases, allergy, asthma, cardiovascular disease now. Mm -hmm. We know that some of the plaques in, in, um, that are laid down during cardiovascular disease have an inflammatory basis to them, so blocking inflammation can be beneficial there. Type 2 diabetes, not considered to be inflammatory disease. There's real evidence now that, that um, inflammation may have a role in this, and, and cytokines like IL-1, again, may, may be involved. So, you know, immunology is reaching into so many areas. If I was advising someone right now in science, which area to, to go into? And I know I'm biased. I would say immunology because I really think the future in terms of in medicine is in immunology. Yeah. And, you know, even just thinking about the past year, immunologists in Ireland, but also across the world have basically been thrust upon this, this platform of, I suppose, um, people trust scientists a little bit more. I think people are a little bit more um, appreciative of the basic research going on in labs. But I'm just interested, you know, how has it been being, I suppose, approached by, you know, Claire Byrne Live, Primetime, asking for, you know, radio interviews, etc. That's not, I suppose, something you would have been all too well used to before. Maybe I'm wrong in that. But how has this year been being, I suppose, a commentator on this pandemic? Well, for, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had any experience really of being on TV. I had a couple of appearances to do with research things, but, but are in the media in general. But this year has been completely manic. I mean, I would get a dozen phone calls a week, more some weeks, um, from journalists, whether it be the, the the TV, radio, and not just in Ireland. I get, I get them from outside the country as well, um, and, and and the print media. So, so you know, I feel that. Um, it's important that scientists have a voice because there is a lot of misinformation in the media. And I also have a worry that the public health doctors, even though they're doing a fantastic job, don't always fully understand the nuances of what the latest papers that have been published. So I think it's incumbent on us to try and explain 
both to the medical profession, but also to the general public, what the, I mean, my mantra has been be honest with everybody about everything. And I don't sugarcoat the issues. I, don't, I know some of my other medical colleagues might, or science colleagues might have slightly different view than this to me, but my, my belief is you should tell the public the absolute facts and let them decide for themselves what the, how they should act on the basis of those facts. And for example, on vaccines, I've made it very clear that um, vaccines are fantastic and everyone should get vaccines, but vaccines can have side effects. And some vaccines are not going to protect you. Mm. For example, the AstraZeneca vaccine has 60% efficacy. I have made that very clear that we're taking a vaccine compared to another one that's 95% effective. And you need to be aware of this. And so the 40% of people getting that vaccine may not be protected and you have to act accordingly. So those are the sort of things that I think are important that the public should know and, um, you know, I think it's useful to have a range of scientists as well as medical people on the media um, explaining to people, but also helping to encourage people to do the right thing in terms of, you know, the preventative measures, but also the benefits and also the risks of vaccination mm -hmm. and what it, what it means for the future for controlling this pandemic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get into it too much because I don't want this podcast at all to be COVID related. I think people are sick of of yeah. hearing these kind of stories. But, you know, va the vaccines that we've received so far, are they going to prevent the spread of, of infection? Could you pass them on? And is there maybe um, a benefit in nasal immunisation, which I think you may be interested in? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So, you know, I was one of the first people to put that out there that in Ireland, at least in the media, that, you know, we have to be cautious about these vaccines. They're, they're, they were designed to prevent COVID disease. And that was the uh, in the clinical trials in the phase three efficacy trials. The, the readouts were the primary endpoint was prevention of COVID-19 disease, not prevention of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Now, they did have some data on prevention of infection, but not a lot. And it turns out that they may not prevent infection. Now, they may reduce the virus titer in the lung and nasal cavity sufficiently to reduce transmission. But I suspect that some people that are immunized and if they get exposed and get infected, they may still transmit it. And the reason I'm saying that is because we, we've learned a lot from some of the other work I do in my lab, which is on whooping cough. And in that disease, the vaccine prevents disease the current acidiopertosis vaccine, but it doesn't prevent transmission. And we get mini epidemics every now and again of whooping cough for, that, for exactly that reason. So I predict that the current vaccines won't prevent um, transmission in every individual that's vaccinated, and that will still have transmission. And coming to your point about nasal vaccination, absolutely. So one of the things that we're looking at, we're not the only ones doing this, is giving the vaccine. So we're, looking, we're working on, on SARS-CoV-2 vaccines in my lab, where we're looking at the benefits of nasal vaccination versus parenteral, or that's injecting it into the muscle. Mm. And um, we've already shown, and we haven't published this yet, that if you give it into the nose, you get much better immunity in the nose. And that's not that surprising, and in the lung. And you get local IgA, which is a first-line antibody, but also you get these tissue-resident memory T-cells in the tissues in the lung and the nasal cavity. And these are the first responders to infection. And injected vaccines don't induce these um, um, tissue resident memory cells by and large. So you're, you're, you're dependent on cells that are in the lymph node being activated and, and, that, and that's maybe a bit too late. Mm -hmm. So we really, really strongly believe that prevention of transmission is dependent on prevention of nasal cavity. Prevention of infection in the nasal cavity is dependent on prevention and on induction of local antibody and T cells in those tissues. So we think this may be second generation or third generation SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. Don't get me wrong, having a vaccine that stops COVID-19 disease is a fantastic achievement. And it's one of, it will go down as one of the greatest achievements in science in 10 years' time. But if we're going to prevent transmission and get herd immunity, we need to have a vaccine that prevents nasal infection with this, with this virus. And that's the, that's the next step in the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose it's good that there's labs and, and researchers like yourself already thinking about those second generation vaccines. And like you said, it is, I suppose, brilliant. We have this first batch here and there is some light at the end of the tunnel, I hope, um, for everyone. And as I said, I don't want, you know, to, I suppose, get into too much of a COVID talk. So I suppose, uh, you know, my last few questions I tend to ask people are, Looking back on um, academia and your academic career to date, 
what do you love most about what you do to do it? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I've said this before. I mean, I get up in the morning. I'm usually at my desk around eight. That's um, COVID permitting in terms of restrictions. But I would, if we, in a pre-COVID era, I would work from roughly from eight o'clock to six o'clock every day in work. And then again in the evenings, most evenings, I would be on emails or writing papers or writing reviewing grants or reading papers in the evening so I work unbelievably long hours but it's useful in that having a wife that's similarly um you know involved in science and and, and a family that understands it My, we live on our own now our, our kids are, are, are obviously left home so you know we work incredibly long hours and we do it because we love what we do both of us and um it's it's hard to explain to someone who's not involved in it that you get up and go to work every day and you don't consider it a job. I don't consider it a job, even though I get paid to do it. I consider it a passion and a privilege to be able to go to work and do things that I enjoy doing. I, I love looking at data with my PhD students and postdocs. I love analyzing it. I love writing the papers. And I, I get a particular thrill out of getting papers accepted. Um, and when, when papers are, are rejected, I have a 24-hour rule with my postdoc and PhD students. You can be fed up for 24 hours. You've got to snap out of it then and think about where this paper is going now that it's been rejected there and find another home for it. And we we start the next day at rewriting it. And if you don't have, if, if, if you can't take failure with success, it's a difficult business to be in. And as you get older, I think you get more capable of dealing with the failures. And, and the failures do come in the form of grant rejections, paper rejections, but, you know, it's part and parcel of what we do. It's all striving for, to be the best. And you, you just have to, I mean, I don't, it is upsetting when things don't go the way you want it or experiments don't work out. Mm. And if experiments don't work out, you just redesign and um, figure out why. And, and that's part of the, you know, the, the inquisitive nature of what we do. It's really intellectually satisfying. I, I, it's, it's a fantastic career. And I, I don't regret a minute of my decision to go into science. Yeah, I think, you know, your 24 hour rule for kind of failure rejection is good, but it's also good. And I, I don't know if you agree to have a 24 hour rule of celebration as well um, for when things go right. And I think with COVID, it's been so hard not being able to celebrate the, the big stuff. You know, this morning we actually got our um, a paper we've been trying to get out since oh, last year. It's online today and, you know, it's emails going back and forth that we're so excited. It's a joint first for me, so I'm delighted. But, you know, I can't celebrate. I'm, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Well, well done on the paper. Uh, that's great. Um, I think it is really tough. I mean, we would always have a good celebration when we got a big paper or grant or some some sort of event in the lab, we would celebrate it by, you know, uh, having a few drinks or going to the pub or go going out for dinner or whatever. Even the PhD vivas now, mm. you know, when our, but traditionally at, when every student finished their PhD, we would, the whole lab would go out for dinner and bring some of their friends then, close friends of the, of the PhD students. We can't do that now. And it, so everything is put on hold and it's really tough on, on everybody. And it's, it's just trying to keep everyone motivated during this period to, to get them to, you know, see that there's a, yeah, a light at the end of the tunnel and that maybe, you know, in the middle of this year that some sort of normality will return when, when the vaccine is, is um, administered to, you know, a dominant number of the population. We hope by the, the autumn to have a year that's, that's going to be better starting the next academic year. That's my wish yeah. for, for next year. I'm I'm still holding out for my graduation to have my Viva celebration. So I'm hoping I could have some sort of a graduation in June, but you know, perhaps not. I'll I'll see how it you goes. Might. Yeah, nice. maybe. But Kingston, my last question for you, which I um, think I perhaps know the answer to is if if you weren't a scientist and if your life hadn't ended up, you know, how it has, uh, you know, what do you think you'd be doing right now? What career do you think you would have had? I mean, obviously, sport would have been a huge uh, draw um, early in my life. You know, when I was in my, my you know, early 20s, I was very you know passionate about about running and I would have been in line to get scholarships to the States, like some of my friends did, to become runners. And, and some of them became professional athletes. And, you know, some of the very good ones made enough money out of running to, to be, you know, able to pay the mortgage. But it, it, it's not like football or, or even rugby. The, the big, really big money 
wouldn't have been the same in running. I mean, unless you're extremely successful, like an Olympic medalist, you wouldn't have made enough money to you know, buy your house and, and, and relax. So I was realistic to realize that, that, that even, even though it was only turning professional when I was a runner, that you were never going to make, make enough money out of that as a career. So it was always going to be a hobby, really, mm-hmm. although I, I, did, I was pretty committed to it. For 10 years of my life, I did nothing but run in science. I didn't go to the pub. I didn't party. Um, I had a very understanding wife, luckily, and you know my life was very much around science and running and and nothing else. With a little bit of socialising, but it was it was it was alcohol-free socialising by and large uh, because it wasn't compatible with being an athlete. So so um, looking back, you know, I can't imagine myself doing anything for a career other than than um, science. Maybe I could have been a PE teacher. I'm glad I didn't go down that route, to be honest. Because I think it's a young person's. Um, uh, I can't imagine being a PE teacher at sixty. So, so um, I'm glad I did science. Yeah, and I mean it's obviously worked out fantastically well so far. And you know, for every continued success, you know, at the minute you're director of the institute that I'm based in, Trinity Biomedical Science Institute. And you know, I think this year, I mean, I could have listed a number of awards at the start of my introduction. But um, yeah, SFI Researcher of the Year as well must have been a fantastic achievement too. Yeah, no, I was delighted to win that. That's the that's a really great was a really great honour because I mean, I've looked at you know high profile people that had won it in the past. And sort of, you know, would like to have been um, nominated for it, I suppose. Um, but I was absolutely thrilled to get that award. And, you know, and to be fair, Science Foundation Ireland have been very good to me over the years, even though I've been critical of some of the policies on, on their funding recently of moving away from basic science. And I've never stopped saying that. I've still managed to get four individual investigator PI grants for them over the last 20 years and they've largely funded my research for the last 20 years so so I have nothing but admiration for what SFI has done for Irish science if it wasn't for SFI Irish science wouldn't be where it is there's no there's no beating about the bush on that mm. they've transformed it completely and um it, it has been you know the best thing that's ever happened to Irish science is to SFI been 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 founded and what they've done well, Kingston, um, on that note, you know, th- thank you so much for, for coming on to chat to me today. I've really enjoyed it and I'm delighted I've completed the Mills Lynch <laughs> trifecta there. So, yeah, thanks again for, for coming on. Thanks, Megan. It was great talking to you. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Tuesday.